0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kristen Turner, and today I'm speaking with Anne Searcy, author of Ballet in the Cold War A Soviet American Exchange, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. This book joins in the conversation about cultural diplomacy between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War by focusing on tours of the U.S. by the Bolshoi Ballet in 1959 and 1962 and two tours of the USSR undertaken by American troops when the American Ballet Company visited the Soviets in 1960 and when choreographer George Balanchine returned to the country of his birth in 1962 with his New York City Ballet Company. Although geopolitical tensions have their place in this book, Cersei is more concerned with the reception of these tours by Soviet and American critics and how they filtered their opinions on the dances and performers they saw through local aesthetic debates, tinged by political realities. Anne, welcome to the podcast. I'm looking forward to
1: our discussion. Thanks. It's lovely to be
0: here. Wonderful. So you are a musicologist and you work as a musicologist, but this is a book about dance. So how did you come to this topic and
1: just studying dance
0: in general as a musicologist?
1: Oh, um, well, I just have always really loved dance. Um, I am not in any way an accomplished dancer, but I like doing it. So I did it as a kid. Um, and I did some other styles of dance in college. Um, but I mostly just really, really love watching dance. Um, and so I basically knew that I wanted to work on the relationship between music and dance up uh, Basically, before I went to grad school, I flirted with some other topics that I thought maybe would be more like musicology-ish. Um, and then I, um, and then I read *Apollo's Angels* by Jennifer Homan's, and I had such, which is a history of dance, sorry, uh, history of ballet. I had such a fun time reading that, and I just thought, I'm crazy. I can't possibly do anything other than music and dance. Um, so that's how I got to dance. Um, but then. I love that book, but the chapter on Soviet ballet um, just really didn't reflect any of the things that I'd seen when I was watching Soviet ballet, Mm because I'd spent, or Russian ballet, but uh, from the Soviet period that was continued on, um, because I'd spent the summer in St. Petersburg watching a lot of ballet live while I was doing a language program. And I got to that section of the book and I just thought, "This this does not describe what I've seen at all, um, and I think it's a very accurate representation of what English-speaking audiences think they know about Soviet ballet, and in particular, in that um, in that chapter, there was a discussion about the Soviet-American tours, and there was um, this encounter that's in the book as well, in my book as well, of the Bolshoi came in. 1962 to the United States, and they performed Spartacus, and there was like a lot of hype for it, and people were really excited about it. And then on opening night, the American audience hated it and they started booing. Um, and they booed, I think, a long time. And there are a lot of accounts of how bad this performance went and how upset everyone involved was. And I just wanted to know about it. It seemed so unusual and the accounts that I was reading about it were that the that this was a really boring like kitschy ballet and I had seen it performed in Russia the year before and I just thought that's not that's not what I saw at all so what happened that these Americans all watched it and saw something kitschy and horrible that they had to boo rather than what I had seen what I thought I had seen which was something like really exciting um and particularly like intellectually engaging (laughs) Sorry, that was a very it's
0: long answer. No, no. It's interesting how um, so often people write a book because they see something a little strange and they think, I wonder what that's about. And suddenly, you know, years later, there's a dissertation or a book about it. So um, that's an interesting story. So um, this is a book about cultural diplomacy. And um, you are writing about a period that was... You know the height of the Cold War, such a, a period of, of tension between these two countries. Um, just to sort of set the stage before we get into those particular tours, you know, why did they even do cultural diplomacy? Mm-hmm. You know, what was the the goals of the U.S. and the USSR in trying to engage
1: in that way? So, as I did the research for this book, I actually um, discovered more than I had imagined that. This is the U.S.-Soviet direct exchange is a really weird subset of what actually goes on in cultural diplomacy or what went under in cultural diplomacy during the Cold War, which was mostly the U.S. and the USSR sending out performing arts groups to other countries. And then it starts making a lot more sense because the Cold War um, was hugely about those two countries trying to control the rest of the world and particularly trying to... um, control uh the newly decolonized areas of the world and so there were a lot of um like Soviet Union in particular started doing this post-World War II um to send out um their orchestras and ballet companies um to lots of different places all over the world to to India to Cuba um to gain support in those areas so by sending those tours um The government was just cultivating allies in other parts of the world, making people grateful to the Soviet Union that they'd sent something beautiful that everybody can now watch and impressed that the Soviet Union could put something so spectacular together as the ballet. And the U.S. started doing this um, basically to keep up with the Soviet Union. Um, The direct exchange between the U.S. and the Soviet Union actually makes a lot less sense. There's a really interesting book... um, by Kirill Tomoff, trying to deal with like, why did any, why did these people agree to do this? Um, but basically they were trying to gain some kind of upper hand by having that exchange. Um, but there's always like this anxiety that goes on in it as well about like um, worry that the other person will get an upper hand in it. Like if you could gain something, maybe they could gain something. So there's this real, uh, focus on reciprocity baked into all the agreements between the USS and the USSR. That's trying to like control what the other person, what the other side could possibly achieve out of this. But they're, they were basically trying to, even in this direct exchange, gain influence, gain sympathy. Um, And on some level, there's also like people who are trying to lessen the possibility of nuclear war. This was really only possible after the death of Stalin in 1953 um, and the US-Soviet exchange becomes formalized in 1958. Um, Cause Stalin just believed that World War III was absolutely inevitable. The US and the Soviet Union would be fighting it like any day now. Um, and so there would be no point in doing cultural exchange in that situation. The leaders after he died were more were more believing that like uh, an agreement could be reached or that like communism could win out eventually without a war. And so we're more willing to have to try to lessen the possibility of military conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union.
0: Well, that brings up another question that I had, which was especially for American ballet companies, why would they go to russia to dance i mean it's sort of i think anyway of russia as or the soviet union as sort of the home of classical ballet i would think that they had much more to lose than they would have to gain to to take part in that cultural exchange so can you talk a little bit about kind of why these ballet companies agreed to do it and sort of what was at stake for them as they undertook these
1: um, tours. So they have the exact same worries that you have. Um, They were very, very concerned. Russia absolutely was considered the home of ballet, the best at ballet by people in Russia and by most people in the U.S., including most dance experts. Um, But... (laughs) money, 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 Um, they really needed the funding from the State Department, Um, like the American Ballet Theater and New York City Ballet, um, and a number of other companies that I don't talk about in the book, in the US really Mm -hmm. relied on funding from the State Department to keep going during this era. And they talked about that very explicitly in meetings. Um, So it's that, but it's also like the prestige of having gone to the Soviet Union. Um, So there's like the direct money that you get from doing the tour. But then there's also the like publicity that they got from having done the tour. So particularly American Ballet Theater was really strongly motivated by that. Like they wanted to be, they wanted to position themselves as the United States' national ballet company. Um, And so going on a tour to the Soviet Union was a way of gaining that prestige. Um, but I think for New York City Ballet, a lot of it was the money. They really wanted to go on a tour of Western Europe. And this was the like pill that you take to go on the tour of Western Europe um, is going on the tour of the Soviet Union. Um, and Balanchine was very anxious about being asked to do that. He really didn't want to go to the Soviet Union um, for a number of like personal and political and artistic reasons. He was just very upset about it. Um,
0: you've talked about this just a little bit, but I wanted to just dig in um, specifically. Why did you ch- pick these four tours? So, you know, there's, as you said, there's a long history of cultural diplomacy there. I'm sure there were other tours you could have chosen, but you chose these four tours, the two by the Bolshoi and then the two by the American um, companies. Why focus in on just those four
1: so I was really interested in doing the start of the exchange. So 1959, when the Bolshoi came to the U.S., was the first time a ballet troupe from the Soviet Union had performed in the United States. and 1960, when American Ballet Theater went to the Soviet Union, it was the first time an American ballet troupe had performed in the Soviet Union. So I was really interested in looking at the first time that people in each country saw the other side's ballet because I'm so interested in in like that moment of reception and not understanding and like seeing a new thing that you think that you're going to understand, but don't actually understand. Um, And then the 1962 tours, I really wanted to do the New York city ballets tour. And that was, um, uh, that was in 1962. And um, I thought about, there's a Soviet tour in 1961. That's also really relevant by the Kirov in the U S. And I sort of went back and forth between Doing, uh, covering that one and covering the Bolshois 1962 tour. But I picked the Bolshois uh, for a few reasons first because that had the Spartacus debacle and I really wanted to talk about that and second off because it was done in a very direct exchange with the New York City Ballet so I mentioned how much reciprocity was on everybody's mind and how anxious they all were about it and so in 62 they tried to solve that by um, arranging it so that the Bolshoi would be in the US at the same time that the New York City Ballet was in the Soviet Union. And actually there was like financial obligation involved in that tour as well, but uh, between the two companies and the impresarios. Um, and then there's a third practical reason, which is that I was in Moscow and all the Bolshoi's documents are in Moscow. And to get to the Kirov's documents, I would have had to go, go to St. Petersburg. It would have just been really hard. It would have made the project almost impossible possible in terms of logistics, um, whereas covering two of the Bolshoi's tours was very possible.
0: I always feel like students have no idea how much of our research is just like, this was open, this was not, (laughs) right? You know, there's always sort of those logistical things involved in
1: deciding on on projects. The St. Petersburg archives are kind of legendarily harder to get into and harder to deal with than all the archives in Moscow, which are sort of very bureaucratic and and like open is not exactly the word I would use, but yeah, open. Like if you have the right paperwork and you go at the time when it says it's open, you can get all the documents. Um, And so I really appreciated that. And I really, and the, actually the Bolshoi theater itself. So that, that what I was talking about is the state archives. The Bolshoi theater also is, is, was very generous. Actually one of the nicest archives I worked in. So they're actually, they have an in-house archive and museum and those archivists just like let me in basically whenever I wanted to come and like brought me whatever documents I wanted to see and let me photograph everything. They were really, really nice. It was a great place to work. Well,
0: that, that's wonderful. That, that just, that makes the whole world better when, when you can do that. Um, so normally when I'm doing these interviews, I tend to sort of go through the book front to back. But I was so struck by one particular encounter that I thought really just wrapped up so many of the themes in the book that I wanted to start with that. And that was the reception in the USSR of the ballet Agon by um, by the New York City Ballet, which was, um, you know, the music is by Stravinsky, which another Russian émigré um, um, or exile. and um, But it's 12-tone music and... Um, Though you describe the the ballet itself as quite abstract, there is what you call an erotic pot de between Arthur Mitchell, who was the only black dancer in New York City Ballet, and Allegra Kent, a white woman. And it seems like a lot of the things that American critics talked about about that pat de and that opera and also how the Russians um, uh, understood it really just, kind of put a bow on so much of what you were talking about in the book. So maybe we could start there and just if you could just go through some of the areas of reception and how and uh, tie it into the larger themes of the book. I think that would be a wonderful way to start.
1: I think in order to understand this, uh, it's good to start with the ways that Americans understood um, how meaning was working in ballet and how uh, people in the Soviet Union were understanding how meaning was working in the Soviet in ballet. So on the American side, um, Balanchine was really the movement, the leader of this movement that saw abstract ballet as better and wanted to use music to achieve that abstraction. So if you mapped choreography very closely on the music, Balanchine thought you would create abstract dance. And that's there are complications there um, because he also talked about having people on stage as sort of inherently suggesting a story to the audience, but he didn't want to stage that story. And he really wanted to explore like form and like form and texture, like musical things with the bodies on stage In the Soviet union music definitely had meaning. Like there, there is an ideology that all arts have meaning. And in fact, in this, of Stalinist period that they have one meaning and you can know what that meaning is and it better be the right meaning. Um, By this point there was sort of agreement that you could have more than one meaning but it definitely like a work of art had meaning music had meaning and dance would be musical if it displayed that meaning so they're also reading music as being very very different Um, so in the US Agon was considered like the absolute height of this style of ballet that Balanchine was creating that's abstract and it's really tied with the music and Balanchine and and Stravinsky created that piece in tandem and it's very complicated and intellectual and about like the many divisors of the number 12 and like how things are arranged on stage in that way but it does have this pas de deux between uh, Mitchell and Kent on tour that she wasn't the original dancer in that part um but specific Mitchell it was it was created for Mitchell so it was supposed to be for a black man and a white woman and you know balanchine always insisted that this was about the sort of abstract qualities of skin color and like seeing the dark and the white skin color coming together and mixing but it is also being staged in the 1950s in the United States and there is an inherent political meaning behind that decision and I don't think there is any mu- dance historian, music historian today that would disagree with that statement. Um, but and Claire Croft is uh, is another dance historian who's covered these tours, <clears throat> has discussed that for for the U.S. State Department for Balanchine for the leaders in the New York City Ballet, Agon was the height of abstraction, and therefore couldn't say anything about race. Um, And so, but at the same time, they loved it because they, the State Department loved to have African-American performers on these tours because they knew the U.S. looked really bad internationally um, because of racism and violence against Black people in the U.S. and people around the world knew about that. And so if they could put African-American performers on tours, then they would never have to actually openly address those issues, but they could sort of just subtly say like, look, how can we possibly be treating Black people badly? Here is one, and he is a dancer in the most important ballet company in our country. Um, And so it like said things about race without having to say things about race. And they loved it for that reason. The Soviets got to it. And they think, first, they think that, you know, the music has meaning or it should have meaning. And they did not like this score, um, almost any of it, um, because, you know, it's very deliberately scientific and there had been, there wasn't a lot of exposure in the Soviet union to 12 tone music. Um, but there had been gradually over the 1950s, like slightly more exposure to 12 tone music. Um, and it was somewhat taking hold in like some avant-garde Soviet circles, but not in the ballet world, (laughs) um, which just wasn't set up to do kind of avant-garde performances in that way. Um, and also, a lot of the discourse that had gotten to the Soviet Union around it had, like, accurately reported things from the the U.S. and Western Europe about 12-tone music being involved in um, math, which it is, um, and science and it being related to those things. And so for the Soviet um, critics, they were really angry almost even at this ballet for not having anything to say about humanity. There's just, like, a lot of despair in those reviews about, like, Like dance is supposed to mean something like art is supposed to mean something and be about humanity. And this is not. And there's like almost like a really palpable distress in those reviews about how, just like how upsetting it is to them that Agon is created in this way and to this music. And because the dance is so closely matched to this music, they feel like the dance is just doing these same sort of exercises. But there is this weird pas de deux, and they they agree to that as well because if you've ever seen Agon the pas de really is really different from the rest of the ballet the rest of it is all like sort of like little jumps and the music is sort of like a little beepy and boopy it's you know it's woodwinds and strings it's not a computer but it, it sounds very um it sounds like twelve 1220 music. It? it sounds very like sort of disjointed in ways. Um, I like it. I love it together. I think the music and dance go really well together, but you know, the dance is doing the same things that the music are, is doing that they really don't like. But this pas de deux has these like long dissonant notes that just are really agonizing and the choreography is done in a way you could read it as modernist abstraction if you were into that, but the dancers are in constant physical contact. They're, um the woman is being like stretched really intensely by the man a lot of the time. There's even one section where like he's dra- no she's draped over his body with her leg up that looks both like a cross and kind of like a the Pietà. Um, so there's just lots of imagery in this that really does suggest meaning and suggests like some really intense emotional relationship between the two of them, and is also quite sexual. The woman like opens her legs up to the audience. Um, it's yeah, it's it is it is a very different moment in this ballet, and the critics loved that, and the audience loved it. Like reports of the first performance uh, the New York City Ballet and the Soviet Union talk about sort of a muted reception in the hall and then like really strong applause for that patade um and i think because and so they started interpreting this as being very emotional um and mostly they they attributed that to Mitchell and Kent the dancers rather than to um Balanchine the choreographer Um, And 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 to some degree, that is actually true. Like people talk about particularly Mitchell doing it with Kent as being more emotional and more sexualized than Mitchell doing it with Adams, which was his previous partner in the role. Um, And part of it is the choreography just allows for more of that there. Um, And part of it is that for a lot of the critics on both sides, it was much easier to applaud performers than choreographers because the performers seemed to be like less political. Um, And they also got to talk about how that also let the critics sort of bring up racial politics in the U.S. without bringing it up too much. Um, So pointing out that they appreciated Mitchell, I think by implication more than the U.S. did, um, was sort of a theme of those reviews. And one of the reviews even talks about that duet be, because they believe that, you know, dance has meaning, no matter what Balanchine says, one of them even brings it up as like a story about uh, race in the US and like assigns roles to them of like, and I'm sorry to use this language, but this is the language that the the critic used is a, a slave and his mistress is how she describes that pas de deux. So they were seeing a lot of these things in it that the State Department believed like were actually impossible to see in it. So, and it does speak, I think, to how differently these groups were viewing the same ballet, like the same thing is being performed on stage and just different people can see different things.
0: Well, that is a lot of the theme of the book about how different, you know, this, the recognition is or the misrecognition becomes um, between these two groups of critics. Um, So maybe we can talk about that for a little while. One one um, aspect of that is what you touched on in this answer which is you know in the Soviet Union music always had meaning but Balanchine and tons of other people in that period in the west not just in America really fought against that this is about objectivity that you know music is tones and form and um, and uh, and this is an old debate that goes back into the 19th century at least but um, I think'll a lot of people think that they're, in the political context of that period, there are some political realities or political context that's important to understand within that debate. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that's primarily an aesthetic debate that is not as anchored in political concerns in that period?
1: Um, I, I definitely think it's anchored in political concerns. I I think there is a real aesthetic debate there, and then I think politics plays a role in how people sided and how strongly they felt about it. Because it's interesting, this actually does go back to the 19th century, but the debates in the 19th century weren't as acrimonious, and they were kind of acrimonious, but they weren't as intense, and they weren't as... Um, the positions I don't think were as far apart from each other as they were talked about in the 20th century. So like know, 19th century believers in absolute music did sometimes think that music could express emotion or like it would have things to do with human reality. There was like a, a middle, more middle ground, I think, in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, because these debates get mapped onto politics, they became so, so intense and so acrimonious. So yeah, the people who believed in absolute music, that music is just form and tone tended to be in the West and they tended to, so it became not just about associating, you know, music with formalism, but also about then associating that with freedom that like, um, and this is a position articulated by lots of different thinkers in the West, including Adorno, um, that that by being the most abstract, the artist could possibly be, they become free of politics. Um, and so bizarrely then that gets mapped in the U.S. onto capitalism and the freedom of like capitalism and democracy, um, which is like on some level hilarious that you can have a system of thought that is about, thinking that you're completely free of, of politics as an expression of politics. Um, and then um, in the Soviet side, uh, because uh, because art was meant to be for everyone, they really wanted it to have meaning, but also, you know, each side seeing the other one got pushed further and further apart. Um, I think particularly in the Soviet Union like knowledge of European f- modernism and formalism pushed bureaucrats and critics further towards music has meaning. Um, it, yeah, it, it definitely matched, mapped onto politics, but it is, but it, there is also a really interesting aesthetic debate in there about like, what is the role of music and story and choreography and dance. And it is a, and it is actually a debate that's been playing out in dance since like the 18th century about how do you express story on stage is it something that you can do purely through movement do you do do you need the music um is it wrong to express story and you should just be like expressing movement and there are like cycles of that in ballet as well um, as in music and different ways of thinking about it so there is actually a really interesting artistic debate it's just almost in the cold war there becomes no middle ground or no way of talking about it because everybody is so entrenched in their ways of thinking about it
0: Um, Well, one of the things that's interesting about that is, um, you know, obviously everybody knew that there was this debate going on in this sort of entrenched position, but it seemed like at least some of the ballet companies and some of the tours chose to um, uh, program repertoire that they hoped would... Um, uh, would appeal to the sort of other side and um, it just doesn't work like <laughs> So I'm sort of thinking of Spartacus in the Bolshoi Ballet and I think um, Fancy Free uh, in the first American tour was also dropped. So here they're thinking we're gonna bring something that's really going to appeal to this, this other audience and yet it doesn't work out. Can you talk a little bit about not only there, about those choices um, to do that but why those works just just failed um, uh, in those respective tours?
1: So I think the big mistakes that the companies made um, were about were less about trying to pick something that they thought would work in the other place, but trying to pick something that they thought just worked all the time and so would work in the other. Place, although they d- they were trying to create a certain image. So that that's what's going on with Fancy Free too. Is that they American Ballet Theatre really wants to create like this image of what America is in the Soviet Union, and they have this repertoire from the 1940s of populist ballets with like everyman heroes um, that do tell a story and are about the like life in the U.S. and Fancy Free is one of them, and so they think they'll bring those to the Soviet Union. And Fancy Free went over pretty well. There are some similar themes between like those populist American ballets and um, socialist realist ballet from like the same period in in the Soviet Union, but um, fancy free, fancy free, um, had some problems in the Soviet Union because it's of its dubious sexual morality, as the Soviet critics sort of talked about it. Um, they were really anxious. Um, in the Soviet Union, about American Western sexuality and about keeping those things out. And so like the the characters in Fancy free are all looking for a one night stand., um, and I think that did not go over that well. Um, Spartacus was also sort of this like dual choice of that. Basically they did think it would go over well in the U S but that's because they thought that the American reception of it would be similar to the Soviet reception, that the Americans would see the same things that the Soviet saw that it was this like epic ballet about somebody fighting for freedom. And they did know that the Americans had this like big film market of epic um, Hollywood, biblical films like Ben-Hur and Quo Vadis, and the Ten Commandments, like, all those things did really, really well in the box office in the US, and it, they knew that, um, and so they thought this would fill that void, and they didn't not calculate how little ballet audiences wanted to see that in the ballet, and how, like, I think that's where we get the the stories that this ballet is so kitschy and horrible is because they think it looks like a Hollywood biblical film, which, to be honest, it does. Um, <laughs> But but um I actually think that the most productive times ways these worked out were when instead of trying to sort of pick the ballet that each company thinks will portray themselves well to the other side they picked the ballet that already is popular on in the other place or that has already Proven itself or it's very similar aesthetically to ballets in the other place because um like the Bolshoi brought ballet school on that same tour with Spartacus, which is uh which was like a set of graduation exercises for the Bolshoi Choreographic Academy. Um and it's like watching Young dancers, and then getting progressively older, doing sort of exercises on stage. Um, and in this, that in the Soviet Union, that was a bad education. But American audiences saw that, and they thought it looked like Balanchine, and so they liked that. So things worked well, or or classics worked really well. People like everyone loved Swan Lake. They did not see the same things in Swan Lake at all, but they all loved it. So that worked really well everywhere, and sort of choices like that. Where, where things were popular in the location they were going. And um, other people have written about col- cultural diplomacy, including Danielle Foster Lucier have talked about similar things that it really works when you're targeting the tastes of the audience and the repertoire in the location you're going to, rather than like how you want to be seen.
0: That's fascinating. Um, what do you think we've already talked about one big point of misrecognition, which is, not agreeing on the meaning of music right and whether there is a meaning um, what do you think are some other kind of touchstone differences between how American critics understood these ballets um, and how Rush, uh, how Soviet critics were looking at them what what do you think is sort of one or two or three however many you know like sort of fundamental differences that um, cause them to not really understand the ballets in the way that the other country's critics understood their own works. So
1: um, the issue of meaning is really fundamental. um, And that plays into other aspects of difference between the way ballet is organized in the two places as well. Um, It's particularly about story and length Um, so um, yeah just in the Soviet Union it was considered good to have your ballet telling a story like that that was considered an aesthetic good Uh, and in the US it was not and so uh, American critics really didn't like almost any Soviet story ballet because they just didn't think ballet should be telling a story so they're brutal to Soviet ballet's like Romeo and Juliet and Stoneflower um, and Spartacus. I think there's another misunderstanding about class and taste that goes on a lot. um, Where in the U S there had been this sort of mm, conflict within dance about what the most tasteful form of dance, the most upper class form of dance is going to be. And ballet had been making its way up that hierarchy, but basically in in the U S Um, arts were used among other things to mark out sort of classes of people like upper class upper middle class middle class lower middle class lower class and like what type of art you liked was in like a marker of where you fell in there and ballet had been like slowly making its way up there's this like famous and it's a it's a joke but you know, the best jokes are based in reality. A famous table from Life magazine showing, like, the likes and dislikes of people in various classes, and like, a lot of it is a joke. It's like, what what, what do you have in your salad? If Depending on which one you are. But, theater, the upper-class person is clearly watching a Balanchine neoclassical ballet. They're watching The Four Temperaments, which is very similar to Agon. Um, and... So, the yeah, dan- ballet in the U.S. was supposed to mark those things out. And the audiences for the Bolshoi were incredibly upper class. It was, like, really expensive to take get a ticket. You, In some cases, you had to have a connection with the impresario already. Like, you had to already have been going to a lot of Sol Hirok attractions to be on the right list to, like, get first priority for tickets. And they were being scalped for outrageous amounts of money. And there were lots of, like, benefit evenings that were being held. And, like, everybody's dressed to the nines and like there, are like there in many cases there are as long articles about these events talking about the audiences and what they were wearing as there are like reviews of the ballet and in the soviet union like there there was definitely a division in in power people who had like access to power and people who didn't people who would have been able to go to these ballets which are definitely people living in cities um usually members of the intelligentsia who have access to sort of going to tickets, but culture wasn't supposed to mark out high and low class. It was supposed to be something aspirational for everyone that like that Soviet government would bring ballet and great art to everyone. And so the two sides also miss each other on that. And I think that's particularly a miscalculation in the Soviets coming to the U S not realizing who's going to be in the audience and what they want out of the ballet. And they want this in part as a status marker. Um, And so that's, again, that everything goes back to Spartacus. That's why Spartacus did so badly. Um, But they also say things about like other Soviet ballets being like really kitschy and tasteless um, because they really don't. The Soviets planning these tours, I think really did not get that aspect of how the arts are functioning in the U.S.,
0: um, and also I, I felt like it also runs up what I, I thought was interesting in the American reception is that this idea that the Bolshoi was old fashioned and kitschy in part because it wasn't upper class enough. Like it didn't look classy enough for them. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, you know, in, in other parts of classical music, the 19th century is it, right? It's, it's all, you know, and so these big story ballets that sort of, um, I would have thought going in, not knowing anything about it, I would think, oh, you know, Spartacus would be great because it's this big 19th century seeming, you know, story ballet or Swan Lake or whatever would would appeal to them for that reason. But that doesn't seem to be the way it works out. So can you talk a little bit about that kind of tension between, um, you know, in the the arts the classical music and classical arts in America being so focused
1: on old stuff, but yet somehow it's bad when the Bolshoi does something like that. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, thank you. This is a really interesting, I think, question. And I think the solution to this is sort of part of the answer is that Swan Lake is great. They love Swan Lake. Um, they just didn't like it when there was a new thing that looked like Swan Lake. So, um, There's this belief in modernization that's very strong in the U S and the Soviet Union at the same time, but we will leave them to the side, um, for right now. This, and it's still believe it's still prominent in our society. I, it gets me all the time. This belief that like the world is traveling along a set path to the future. There's like a way to get forward. And we all know what the way is. Um, and this belief that arts have to move along that path. So it's almost the duty of the artist within modernism that the artist is like a little bit far forward from um, the audiences. Um, I'm sorry. I'm chuckling because my students would so recognize me railing against modernization theory. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to not, I'm trying to keep my cool. Um, so There's this belief, and in the U.S., that's very tied to uh, a belief in democracy and capitalism, like this belief that the world has sort of moved through its proper stages and has gotten to capitalism. And once capitalism and democracy encircle the globe, that essentially we'll get to the end of history. And this is also how you get in the 1990s, this belief that we have reached the end of history uh, because the Soviet Union has collapsed. Um, And they believed that... Uh, as a result of that, the U.S. had the most sort of up-to-date... The West had the most up-to-date modern music. And 12-tone music was... And other types of modernism, we sort of reduce that to 12-tone music some of the time. But, like, modernist music was the cutting edge. Um, and George Valentine's ballet was the cutting edge of dance. Um, and so they often... Seen the Soviets having done a different thing in the 20th century, almost like didn't compute. Like they just saw that it hadn't modernized the same way that they had modernized. And so to them, it was old fashioned. And that's one of the things that I find so surprising in the, in these reviews is this constant accusation that things like Romeo and Juliet, Stoneflower, Spartacus are stuck in the 19th century. Where if you watch them back to back, they are not like Swan Lake at all. They're very different from 19th century ballet's, Because the Soviets have invented all these new techniques for storytelling in the ballet. But because the Americans are not interested (laughs) in storytelling, they just don't even recognize it as being different or new. So they liked it when the Soviets performed the classics because, as as you mentioned, American audiences in the 20th century loved 19th century music. There's this real rise in sort of middle brow appreciation for the classics um but they can't like and I, I will say the critics can't approve of Romeo and Juliet and Stoneflower they can like it and this is this is actually one of the other reasons I find Spartacus so interesting because it seems like the audience didn't even like it but like the audiences loved Romeo and Juliet I mean like applause that lasted like for 15 curtain calls for Romeo, the first Romeo and Juliet. Um, the dancers described it as like almost stunning. I interviewed uh, Marina Kondratyeva, who is one of the dancers and she talked about those audiences being like the most appreciative they'd ever encountered. Um, Leonid Lavrovsky was like writing about it in his letters home to his wife. And he's like, Uh, Ah, this is they like this is like it wasn't um it was something furious he talks about um with people like screaming and ripping up their programs and throwing them and like throwing flowers and like whistling so they liked Romeo and Juliet they just like couldn't admit the critics couldn't admit that it was good um and so you get all these like contortions in the American critics to say like oh you know the the lead dancer is good Um, the ballerina is really good no mention of but but the stuff she's performing is like oh it's 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 so passe it's so bad Um, but yeah no I think people liked Romeo and Juliet in particular I think people really liked it Um, they just you know officially they didn't like it
0: well boy that's You know, I studied a lot of critical response in the turn of the century, and that sounds like exactly what they said about Carmen. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, the singing is so good, but of course, it's a terrible opera, and it's all about the lowest common denominator, and sex, 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 and all of that. So, yeah, that definitely doesn't start in the 60s, for sure. Yeah. You also found an interesting sort of gendered component to the way that some of these operas were... um, uh, received, you know, you talked about sort of the racial aspect of it, where it was very much in American, it's politically con- con, uh, convenient for American critics to go, Oh, there's no politics here when I see a black w- man and a white woman <laughs> dancing together. But, um, and the Soviets of course are like, Oh yeah, I, I do believe there's something <laughs> to be said here. Um, what about this gendered aspect to, to the criticism as well?
1: Well, this happens, I think, particularly in the U S um... There's... I, so I mentioned they, ha- they have to sort of explain how they like Romeo and Juliet but don't like Romeo and Juliet. Um, and the way they get around this is by talking about how much they love the lead ballerinas. Um, and ballet in the late 19th and definitely in the 20th century was very much about women. So women are at the center of most ballets. Um, but... There's this split in the way people thought about ballet between the sort of performance aspects of it, which are considered sort of very feminine and almost like mindless. And it's, you know, it's all about emotion and expression and technique and the body. And it has very little to do with intellect or politics, which are sort of ascribed to choreographers and composers and who were at the time, in the U.S. and the Soviet Union, mostly men. Um, all in the U.S., ah, no, mostly men in both sides. Um, and um, so the U.S. critics liked to write a lot about how much they loved the Soviet ballerinas. And the U.S. press in general was just like, just following the, the ballerinas everywhere, like taking pictures of them, like reporting everything they did in the press, like treating them like Hollywood stars. Um, and the critics talked endlessly about how much they loved the lead ballerinas, particularly Galina Ulanova and Maya Plisetskaya, but others as well um, got reported about, but they hated the ballets. And so they could separate this out uh, using this sort of like gendered language they already had and, um, for both ballet and politics to talk about how the sort of male parts, the political parts, the, you know, intellectual parts were bad, but they loved like non-intellectual parts as they saw it, which was the performance and what the ballerinas were doing. Uh, And there's also, there's like a slight tinge to it already at this point that the U.S. is like rescuing those ballerinas by really appreciating them. Um, And that kind of language about the U.S.-Russian, U.S.-Soviet relationship um, persisted a lot in American discourse through the Cold War and and 1990s.
0: So, uh, So you're talking about the gendered aspect of this. It's very interesting sort of I'm not so sure I like the opera, but boy, those beautiful women, you know, yeah. kind of uh, kind of uh, reception. But you also had something really interesting to say, I thought, about um, sort of critical discourse in the Soviet Union related to censorship and particularly mm-hmm. to um, how American... Um, musicologists or at least non-Russian-speaking musicologists have thought about um, the relationship between criticism and censorship in in the Soviet Union and how um, the thought was for a long time that all censorship was top-down and they sort of told people what they could say and that was that. But you're finding that post-Stalin, it's a little more complicated than that. And there were ways within sort of a rather rigid discourse where censorship did exist, that critics really could have, in some ways, an open conversation. Can you talk a little more about that aspect of it? I found that particularly fascinating.
1: Thanks. Um, I, th- I think I'm, I don't want to say I'm the first person to talk about this because uh, Soviet historians have been talking about this since the 90s and musicologists about Soviet music um, for the last 10 years or so, um, sort of. Prior to this, prior to the archives opening into the, in the 1990s, um, people in the West, in the English-speaking world in particular, really sort of believed that everything, everything that was coming out of the Soviet Union was a lie to some extent and that everything was censorship and you could sort of never believe anything that was put in print or said in a speech because it was all politically motivated and... Um, there's still a way that we talk about it now when people talk about totalitarianism, there's this belief that, like, the General Secretary, so Stalin and Khrushchev, sort of imposed their will on everyone and dictated what everyone in the whole country could say. Um, But first off, that's not very practical. Like, Khrushchev had better things to do than think about what was getting printed in ballet reviews. Um, But also um by this period sort of the late 1950s the 1960s the it's called the thaw um censorship was being sort of was almost more collaborative than top down like there was a censorship bureau but like they worked in collaboration with editors they didn't really tell what writers what to say and there certainly there certainly was a sense of um I don't, I don't even love se- the word self-censorship because it feels like there's like a thing that you want to say, but then you don't say it. But there's like a there was like a knowledge of what the like right discourse would be that people talked into. But I think within that, there was like a much broader range of things that people could say about ballet than we've recognized. And this is particularly like really tough uh, in ballet histories um, that you read about about the Soviet Union. And I think this is where um these myths about the Soviet Union are still persisting is in a lot of English language ballet histories um there was and and sort of evidence for this includes first off, there's a variety of opinions being expressed about the American companies so they must have been allowed to say multiple things because they said multiple things. Um, but also there's um Elizabeth Suritz is a, is a Russian dance historian who was a very young critic at the time. Um, And she reviewed the company and she's written about it um, in an article about this. And she talks about both sort of generally knowing the like tone that she needed to take, which was actually a good tone. Like she knew that she had to say something nice about the company because um, otherwise there would might be retaliation against Soviet companies, but also that, and that, but she sort of doesn't talk about having any more censorship than that, than the sort of knowledge of like what would be good to say. And she also talks about feeling, seeing the New York city ballet in this, in this way in the 1960s and remembering seeing it in that way that she no longer possesses. And is even now like a little sh- ashamed of having sort of seen the New York city ballet and what she now sees as like the wrong way, but I would, as sort of like the Soviet interpretation in the 1960s. Um, But yeah, so there was a lot of of great variety of opinions. I think all of the reviewers had to have like a little statement about like realism is important and they all do. In some cases, it's like hilariously tacked on. Like uh, there's a Kachaturian review it like goes through all the things. And then just like the last couple of lines is like, oh, and of course realism is important. Um, so I think they all knew they had to say that, but also there's this like diversity of what realism, what socialist realism has even started to mean in the 1960s. Um, and this is something that Alexei Yurchak, is a sociologist uh, of this period. And slightly later has talked about that, like, by the late Soviet period, people were sort of like saying all the correct things and doing all the correct things, like the sort of like formulaic things they had to say and do, but they were sort of reimagining those things to mean new things, to have like to have a variety of different meanings by this period. So I find socialist realism almost like a really interesting version of that. Cause in the 1930s and 40s, there was actually sort of a, a pretty clear sense of what socialist realism would sound and look like. and mean but by the 1950s and 60s they're just sort of like deploying realism that that's the word that tends to appear socialist realism doesn't tend to appear but realism tends to appear there's a sense that they know what realism means it gets deployed all the time but like it could mean a lot of things like maybe realism is like enjoying the human body (laughs) maybe realism is caring about like values like truth or beauty maybe realism is like having a narrative so they all say like oh you know of course realism is really important and especially because Balanchine had talked a lot about how like abstraction is really great in his interviews so you had to say that he was wrong about that but um yeah so there's like yeah it's it's realism is like not abstraction but because abstraction is such um its own sort of point of intellectual rigidity that almost anything else that isn't—I don't even know what a pure abstraction would be in this case, like pure, pure form with no thought at all. Anything else could be realism. Um,
0: I'll—you know—I could ask a million other questions. I want to ask just one more uh, before we wrap up our discussion. But I was really shocked. What a historical coincidence! There was an American troop in Russia in the Soviet Union during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Bolshoi was in America at the exact same time during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And yet it seems like, if I if I interp- interpreted your book correctly, it didn't really impinge on the tour very much at all, despite... You know, I think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, like everybody stopped and for four days they worried they were going to be blown up, you know, by a nuclear bomb. And I sort of have this image of the world just not moving, you know, for days on end as they worried about this. But that's not really what seems to have happened. So I'd love to hear, like, what what your ideas now are about the Cuban Missile Crisis based on the fact that these two groups could be there and they seemed relatively untouched. So like what happened to them? And, and what do you think really what it was like to live through that period based on what you've learned?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I hadn't sort of thought about it in exactly that way before. But yeah, they, um, the two troops kept touring, kept performing, kept practicing. And to be honest, doing those things was really time intensive and really stressful under any circumstances. They had to perform a lot um, and sort of be on their best behavior all the time. So they basically just kept doing that. Um, they were like vaguely aware of what was going on, um, but did, did they, it couldn't stop what they were doing because they had to just keep practicing and performing. Um, I do think particularly in the U S there's some interesting stuff that happens in in November sort of, After the official end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but while the US and Soviet governments were actually still negotiating the terms of the agreement, and also while mm, President Kennedy was sort of (laughs) capitalizing on that moment uh, domestically, uh, where the, you know, Kennedys invited the Bolshoi, like they became a lot more involved in the tour during this period. So like Kennedy went to a performance, they invited the troop to the White House, Um, which was not normal um they like they sent their daughter to another performance and there was like a gift exchange they invited the company like some of the company dancers to thanksgiving dinner at like kennedy's mom's house in when they were in massachusetts so like there was like a really strong involvement i think both to sort of signal goodwill to the soviets um that sort of to signal no goodwill to the Soviets at a very very tense moment. Khrushchev had been to like see an American singer during during the actual crisis, and that was seen as a marker of like, oh, he doesn't hate us, like this could work out. Um, but also in the U.S., Kennedy was like projecting this image of as being a statesman, and so entertaining the Soviet dance, like graciously entertaining the Soviet dancers and like welcoming them in his tuxedo at the ballet looked really good for that too. Um, In terms of life going on, yeah, I mean, I think it did. And I think uh, we're living during the pandemic. And I think we are all coming to know, I mean, in some ways, our life has shut down, because of the ways that the pandemic has raged on. But at the same time, like, we have all learned that you can live with stress about world events, but still like have to do your job. Um, You know, and I think, it's I, my impression of reading newspapers and reading about the dancers from this period is that that's basically what's going on Is people were continuing their lives while feeling a lot of stress about what was going to happen in the future.
0: Well, this is just a fantastic book, eminently readable, so interesting and, um, you know, just really Um, Such a fascinating book. So I hope that our talk today has sort of wet people's appetites and and they'll go and read the whole thing because, believe me, there's plenty that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, But now that you finished this big project, what is on the horizon for you now?
1: So um, I still want to work on music and dance because that's very, very dear to my heart. Um, I'm interested now. I'm working on this project about... Minimalist music and ballet in the 1980s, 90s, and I think maybe up to the present, haven't quite decided on its parameters. Um, but because American ballet was so involved in music and sort of new music in the 1950s and 60s, after Valentine's death, um, there's this sense of loss and what are we going to do Um And one of the things that New York City Ballet does is turn to minimalist music, um, which was the style of super repetitive music um, by Philip Glass and Steve Reich. Um, And I'm really interested in how that changes the way that time and meaning work in ballet because they were mapping so much onto music that when you change the style of music, I really think a lot changes in what's going on in the ballet. And to me, it also is a really interesting moment where minimalism was moving from being this, um, like hippie music where you do drugs and then bliss out to, um, hours of repetitive music towards this like really institutionalized music that now when we hear it often like signifies things like money and cities and computers. Um, and I think that this moment where it, uh, I don't think it that happens because of dance, but I think that the use of it in dance has a lot of things to say about how people are hearing it differently. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now.
0: That sounds absolutely fascinating and a great way to sort of complement the work that's going on in minimalism in other spaces, like, you know, minimalism opera, for instance, I think yes. there's probably going to be a lot of, of, of uh, not crossover, but maybe residences for, um, in those two things
1: the ballet that i'm working on right now um uh uh, glass pieces um the third section of it is actually pulled from philip glass's opera akhenaten and in fact this was the premiere of that music it hadn't actually debuted as an opera yet but it got used in this like this section of it got used in the ballet before it actually premiered. oh
0: my gosh so there you go well that's Sounds very interesting and and good luck on that. So thank you so much for joining me today. This is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and I've been speaking with Anne Searcy, author of Ballet in the Cold War, a Soviet-American exchange. Thank you so much. Thank you.